Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I'm Megan Gibson, Senior Editor International in London. I'm Emily Tampkin, U.S. Editor in Washington, D.C., I'm Philippa Nuttall, Environment and Sustainability Editor in Brussels. It's Thursday, the 18th of November. You're listening to World Review from the New Statesman, a twice-weekly international news podcast. Every Thursday, we come together to unpack some of the most significant stories in world affairs. And every Monday, we interview a guest for their unique perspective and expertise. This week, we look at the ongoing terror trial for the 2015 Paris attacks. What happened yesterday in Paris was an act of war. Dear countrymen, what we are defending is our homeland, but more than that, we are defending the values of humanity. How is the country reckoning with the memory of that night and its lasting impact? Then, COP26 in Glasgow wrapped up last Saturday. I apologize for the way this process has unfolded, but I think as you have noted, It's also vital that we um, protect this package. What happens next? And will countries offer more than lip service? Thank you for joining us. Let's begin. Megan, let's get right into it. We heard at the top of the podcast there a clip from former French President Francois Hollande saying that the attacks back in 2015 were an act of war. The trial about the attacks is currently ongoing. Can you talk a bit about the trial and how the memory is being processed in France? Yes, definitely. So obviously this past weekend, we just saw the sixth anniversary of the Paris attacks. So on 13 November 2015, we saw a group of jihadists kill 130 people, 90 of which were at the Bataclan Theater. More than 400 more people were injured. For obvious reasons, this looms large in the national story of France and in France's national memory. This week, we have a piece, actually, in The New Statesman by one of our sub-editors, Catherine Carls. And she recounts her memories of that night as she was living in Paris and explores a major study that's underway in the country. Denis Pachansky is a senior researcher at the French National Center for Scientific Research, and he's co-leading a study called Programme 13 November. Through this study, he's conducting thousands of interviews of survivors, victims, family members, witnesses, first responders, and just hundreds of other people across the country to go over their memories of that night. This study is going over the course of a decade 
So he's interviewing the same people over and over again every few years to see how the memory of the attacks is changing and shaping both individuals' memories and the collective memory. And so we're at a very significant point in the study because, as Emily mentioned, the terror trial has started. So it began on 8th of September. It's due to run until May 2022. It is the largest criminal trial in France's history. There's 20 defendants, more than 1,800 civil plaintiffs, and a case file of more than a million pages. So it's it's a huge, huge endeavor. But it's about more than just determining the guilt or innocence of the accused. A huge thing that's kind of emerged out of this trial is that it's become a very cathartic moment for the survivors and the country. So this is one of like the first times that all of these witnesses, you know, the victims' families, survivors can come together and share their recollections of that night. And it's it's proven a very, very powerful moment. A lot of the people who've been testifying have said that they found a real peace and a sense of, you know, collective unity with other people. And I think that's just really powerful because obviously one of the real devastating impacts of terrorism is, you know, the cracks it forms in society, the the, the divisions. So the fact that this trial has, instead of reliving a nightmare, it's been really seen as, you know, a, a healing moment and a catharticism. I mean, I think just that's, it's, it's really quite a profound moment. And also I will find that one of the experiences of, of editing this piece of Catherine's in the process, Catherine, myself, New Statesman's creative editor, who's French, Jerry Brackis, and she was also in Paris that night. We've all kind of, you know, behind the scenes been sharing our own recollections of that night. And it's just really driven home, like just the power of how how your memories change over the years and what the little pieces that you you take away with you and then the things you remember when you hear someone else's memories. I just think it's been really, really just an, an interesting just a little microcosm of what is happening with the trial in a larger sense. The fact that it can can heal and not just re-traumatize, I think, is no small thing. And you've also mentioned that it that the trial is serving as something of a truth commission, um, which not which not every society gets to have when it goes through a, a traumatic, violent event. Can can you speak a bit more about that? Yeah, definitely. So I mean it's 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 not just the victims and survivors who are giving testimony. Um, we heard at the top Francois Hollande speaking. He also gave testimony last week. So he's setting the scene basically of allowing the trial to examine, you know, the political context and the social context in which these attacks occurred. And I think that is kind of helping to put together puzzle pieces, basically. So it's not just a one moment in time. This is, you know, it's it's all interconnected with with you know the politics of it the, the the way the society functions how the police responded it's really completing a picture that i think also is a big part of the healing process i mean one thing denis pachansky and his his research has pointed out is that memories of of traumatic events that are riddled with holes allow for doubt and confusion and can can really re-traumatize people. But I also think if you just want to look at the politics of this, this trial is going to run over the upcoming elections in France. 
And we're already seeing with a lot of far right and right wing candidates, the idea of, you know, Islam, migrants, you know, there's an opportunity to see how the trial could be exploited by these candidates. But it's really, I guess, heartening to see that so far it hasn't been a, a toxic procedure. It's been healing. Particularly since I think very often when there are terror attacks who are carried out by people who are Muslim, those events are then used to stir up Islamophobic hatred and go after Muslim people who, as a part of that country and society, were also attacked, right? I mean, who were also a part of of the society and also potentially traumatized and also trying to heal. So it's, yes, I think one to watch is whether or not it is politicized. I am deeply heartened to hear that that so far that that has not been the case. Yeah, and I don't want to overstate it because, I mean, we've still months of the trial to go. Right, and, and months before the election to go to. Yeah. Philippa, before you know, we sort of sat down this podcast, you mentioned that the next year in 2016, you were in Brussels during an attack on that city. When you hear Megan speak about trauma and memory and the way in which going back individually, publicly, collectively can be helpful. Do parts of that resonate with you? Do you do you disagree? Yeah, I think it, it definitely resonates. I mean, I lived in Paris for a number of years. So so the, the attacks in Paris had an impact in the sense that I knew exactly where it happened, even though I, I obviously wasn't there. The attacks in Brussels, especially on the metro, were very close to, to where I was working at the time. Um, it's the main metro line that lots of people get to go into the, the EU quarter where the European institutions are. So um, I think it is something, yeah, it's clearly very poignant, even if you're not directly involved, that it's something that, that stays with you, that you remember. And that, that, yeah, people talk about afterwards for, for a long time, even if they're not directly uh, impacted, because it does have a, a, an impact on that whole community, definitely, yeah. And also, it makes me think, Emily, this is kind of a question for you, I guess, but, you know, we're just two months past the 20th anniversary of the 9-11 attacks. And obviously, there's been lots of stuff in the media and documentaries um, going over, you know, what happened in the, the wake of those attacks. But I'm trying to pinpoint in my memory a moment where there was some kind of similar, you know, national reckoning. And I don't think that's ever been no, happened. I- I don't think there was. And I think I think that's part of the reason that, that the United States is still I mean, there are many reasons that the United States is still 20 years later dealing with the aftershocks of 9-11. But I think one is not only was there not something like this, but the administration at the time, um, the, the Bush administration did not want anything, any kind of public commission for this. And in fact, the the victims' families had to push, right? And, and, and I, I interviewed one woman a couple of months ago, lost her mother. And basically, I mean, she said that they, 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 were, they were hearing what had happened while sitting in the family section in this horrible public way during the hearings and the testimonies after, because nobody had, that originally nobody had wanted mm-hmm. to have, right? But then once they decided to have them, this was the only way that the victims' families could sort of piece together what had happened. There was a lot of resistance on the part of the administration to have anything like what you were just describing. And certainly, I think it goes without saying that the event was was politicized and was used to justify anti-immigrant policies, deeply Islamophobic policies um, and politics. And I think the same woman, uh, her name is is Terry McGovern, you know, she was saying that even today, the, the 9-11 Museum in New York, it's not really about 
the victims and their families. It's the story about America. And and when you just stick to that narrative about who were the heroes and who were the villains and, and forget about the people who were actually like the most deeply impacted by this, you can't have that kind of catharsis. You can't have that kind of healing as a, as a society. I don't think. No, that's a really, really good point. And obviously it's, it's impossible to compare the two events. I mean, you look at the place France was in when the Paris attacks happened. I mean, it was bookended by the Charlie Hebdo attacks that were in January of that year and then followed on by the Lorry attack in Nice the following summer. And it's just, it's actually, I think, really commendable that there is this, this attempt by the government and the civil society to come together to try and kind of grapple with that in in actually it's i mean it's only been six years it, it seems like a long time ago but in a way it seems you know just just a moment ago um so yeah i think i think it is really a really commendable and really really interesting project that i think other other societies should maybe you know kind of try and take a lesson from well we will post Catherine's piece that that megan worked on in the show notes for this episode and we'll continue to follow the trial and the and hopefully more of the catharsis and the healing that comes with it. Switching gears now and turning to COP26, Philippa is back, as you can all hear, back on the podcast with us. And Philippa, at the top of the show, we heard Alok Sharma speak about disappointment, which is sort of, I think, for listeners who have not been following along, might strike them as sort of strange. Why would you close this historic event with an acknowledgement of disappointment? Can you, can you give a bit of context there? So I think there were disappointments in various levels. I mean, COP26 was was always in a way going to be a disappointment. I mean, the whole process of the UNFCCC, so the, the, the UN framework in which the, the climate negotiations take place, is in a way an amazing feat of 200 countries coming together and trying to decide on something. And, and having 200 countries trying to decide on anything is, is kind of amazing in its own right. But it's always going to be uh, a disappointment in the sense that we're always going to drag it down, perhaps not to the lowest common denominator, but it's never going to be the most ambitious level of, of climate action. And in particular, because those calling for the most ambitious levels of climate action tend to be the smaller countries, especially small island states or developing countries, which are really on the front line of the impacts of of extreme weather from climate change, but at the same time, obviously have less diplomatic and political clout compared to to developed nations. Then there was a second part of the puzzle in the sense that at COP you receive various draft texts to sort of show where the negotiations are going, which eventually form the basis for the final agreement. The text, which was seen as kind of almost the final text, um, it had language in saying it was going to phase out coal, which sounded quite weak. There was no date. But the fact that fossil fuels were mentioned in a UN document on climate change was was real progress. And Alex Sharma had basically decided that we were almost there and we could kind of go away and they could agree the final text. And then suddenly India stood up and said that it and China had agreed that it would be a phase down rather than a phase out of coal. It was also after Alex Sharma had said that there could be no changes to the text. Um, and so both the weight had been done, which was in a bit of a backhanded manner, and the fact it was weakening uh, the outcome, even if Boris Johnson the next day suggested to, to the, the British nation that it perhaps wasn't weakening and the language wasn't that important. It, it was a weakening. And so and I think Alex Sharma recognised that fact and, and was quite disappointed that, that that had come, and especially in these final hours after two weeks of negotiations. 
I saw there was there was a lot of talk about phase out versus phase down right after that that news broke. Um, and my first reaction was that while that is, to Sharma's words, disappointing, if there is action taken or not taken, is it really going to be because India changed phase out to phase down? But what do you think? Climate science shows clearly that we need to phase out all fossil fuels, essentially, if we're going to stick to the commitments made under the 2015 Paris Agreement, which is to attempt to hold global warming at no more than 1.5 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels. We're already at 1.1, 1.2 degrees of warming. We essentially have to cut emissions by 45% by 2030. These are massive targets that we're setting ourselves. Um, and so therefore, while the language, as you say, may ultimately change nothing, especially for countries on the front line of climate impact who are really seeing disastrous weather events constantly. And we've seen this week, even the events in Vancouver and the massive flooding there. These impacts are huge. So they're huge, both in terms of of human cost uh, and infrastructure cost, but also just the cost to the nation that we have to pay to repair these things, pay to repair roads or people's homes. Um, And, you know, nations like Tuvalu, you know, their islands are literally sinking, they're literally disappearing under. So any kind of of sop almost to say to countries, well, you know, actually, we'll just change a bit here and there is important, I think, because it's, it's the signal it sends to the countries that they're being listened to and also to companies and to the markets to say this is where the world is now heading. And so in that sense, I think it is important. The other thing perhaps to mention about coal, which makes it slightly more complicated, is often the developing countries' economies that are still hooked on coal. Um, So it's easier for developed nations to say, let's get off coal, because even countries like the US, which have lots of coal in their system, they're moving away slowly, but they are moving away from coal, whereas countries like India or China, and especially India, are very much not doing that yet. And it's hard because on the one hand, the US is historically the world's largest emitter and did have coal in its development process. And so for us to now turn around and say, well, you can't do that. Is it hypocritical? Sure. But the people who are going to be most affected if India does not get out of coal are, 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 many of them are in India, right? So it's not that the world is asking for a completely selfless thing. This is also in the long term and even at this point, medium and short term interest of the countries of, of which the ask is being made. Philippa, you had said ahead of the conference that we shouldn't think about this in terms of was it a success or was it a failure, but rather of what was actually accomplished, what happens now? And so my question for both of you, and I guess, Megan, I'd like to, to hear from you first is what, based on what you've read and heard, do you want to see happen now? Do you think, okay, they did this, now they can go do do that? I think one of the questions that really sticks in my mind, and I know in many ways it's really unhelpful to frame COP26 as it has been by some, but you know, as the last chance to make a stand against climate change. But looking ahead, COP27 is in Egypt. COP28 is going to be in the UAE. Neither of those venues are going to be really places where activism is really allowed. So it really kind of brings to my mind, not was COP26 the last chance, but was COP26 the last chance for COP? What is the usefulness of COP going forward? Is there going to be need, need to be some kind of new venue or new, new avenue for more ambitious target setting? And, and Philippa, you were actually in Glasgow. And so while you were there and, and now that it's, that it's wrapped up, when you think of what you just saw, what do you think needs to be done next besides like everything? Yeah. So I'd just like to come back a little bit, Emily, in terms of what you said about India being on the front line and and the worst impacts being on, on people in India. And that is very true. But at the same time, 
India doesn't necessarily have the means to pay for its transition. And so this is a big part of what was not decided at COP26 was the idea as to who pays. Um, developed countries agreed to pay a, a $100 billion in climate finance a year by 2020, which has, has never come forth in its full amount and won't be now until 2023. And the second part of this is the idea that developed countries need to pay for historical emissions, essentially, so therefore, we need to help these countries and, and developed countries, especially the US, are particularly reluctant to come forward to do that. And actually, sorry, just very quickly, but our Monday podcast was an interview I did with Samir Saran, who runs a think tank in Delhi. And I asked him, you know, how are you going to, you, you have this lofty rhetoric, but there's also pollution and coal use. And he said, we're going to get off it the same way that London and New York did. And that's going to be painful. But what would make it less painful is acceleration. And the way that you accelerate that process is if there's investment from other countries like the US. And by the way, this is an area for India-US cooperation. If the Biden administration is all, you know, all in on India, this is a a clear and obvious spot where they could work together. Um, So yes. Yeah, exactly. And that, that was that was very clear. And I think Biden has, uh, you know, President Biden has been very clear at home that he wants climate justice. He wants to make sure that the jobs which are created are good jobs, they're unionized jobs, that it, the, the climate action impacts all sectors of American society. And there is a big push now um, from developing countries and from NGOs to make sure that he has that same mindset abroad. Um, so I think that's really important. In terms of what you said, Megan, I think you're you're totally right. I think what's interesting is with the COP being held in Egypt next year, you're quite right. There's unlikely to be um, Greta Thunberg standing up telling us all it's, it's greenwash given the limitations on protest. But at the same time, COP now also needs to be owned. Climate action needs to be owned by Africa. This is where we need the money to come from. These countries need to be able to stand up and have a voice and present their arguments and what they want and how they're suffering from climate change. And so it does make sense, even if it's difficult to perhaps accept that that COP does need to be in parts of the world where change needs to happen, the same as the UAE. You know, in oil states, we need to see what is actually happening. How can these countries change their economies? Because their economies are highly linked to oil and to fossil fuels. So they're difficult decisions. um, And I don't necessarily agree with them. But I think we need to also look at them perhaps in a slightly different mindset than just looking at it as, you know, the cop that happened in Glasgow is the sort of the model. And so therefore, in terms of where the the UNFCCC mandate goes, and, and its ability to move the world forward on climate action, it's clearly not perfect. And I think what we need to see is the, the process of COPs is just a little bit of the puzzle. And outside of that puzzle is the everyday action that needs to happen at a governmental level, at the level of the private sector, companies, even individuals. And that's also a big societal discussion that we now need to have, that behavioural change from all of us is part of this. And we can never achieve these targets. And governments don't have a mandate necessarily to even act unless we as individuals also push for action and say this is, you know, we want a a world which is is not got runaway climate change, which hasn't uh, got extreme weather events all the time. And, 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 you know, we can see at the moment in Delhi, you know, the smog's appalling. A lot of that is not simply from coal. It's from lots of other environmentally problematic uh, practices. But these are all things that we as a society need to, to ask for change as well. And just to kind of point out that the UK is guilty of its own hypocrisy, I mean, just ahead of... of- COP26 in Glasgow, the UK announced in their last budget that they were having air passenger duty for domestic flights. So, I mean, no country is 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 a real standout in, in, in any of this regards. Wherever you are in the world, if you're interested in global affairs, 
You can subscribe to The New Statesman on digital, in print or both for as little as one pound a week at newstatesman.com slash subscribe. That's just $2 a week in America. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. And with that, it is time to move on to a section that we like to call You Ask Us. Great. Thank you, Megan. This week's question is, what does Russia want in Ukraine? Listener, we don't exactly know the answer to that. However, um, basically, there has been a buildup of Russian troops on its border with Ukraine. Those who have been following the story will know that in 2014, Russia annexed Crimea and also sent both troops and support into eastern Ukraine. And the country has been occupied ever since. The U.S. then put sanctions on Russia for what it did in Ukraine. There are some who will tell you that this deterred future Russian action. There will some who say that this is proof that sanctions do not work because seven years later, Russia is still very much in Ukraine. The fear now is that Russia is escalating and that they're going to go for all out war as opposed to just occupation, hybrid war, etc. I mean, we don't we don't really know what is going to happen now. Could it could it be that they are gearing up for a full invasion of Ukraine? Yes, anything is possible. Is it perhaps more likely that they will send further arms to the separatists in Ukraine? Yes, I think it is. I think one interesting question is what the international community can do about this. We have a piece from Paul Mason this week, essentially saying that for Russia's malign activities, it should be more stringently sanctioned. And it's not that I necessarily disagree with that, or that, I mean, there are many people who believe that that's the right course of action. But I do wonder if at this point that deters Russia or matters to Russia, given the record of sanctions so far. I mean, it's really interesting because obviously Putin's amassed a bunch of troops, 100,000 troops, Ukraine's border. He also did this in March and it came to nothing. 
And he's not hiding that he's doing it. So there's a lot of people who feel that, that he's he's not doing anything. This is just a, a show of strength to, and sending signals to Kiev, to Washington, to Brussels. Yet Putin really likes to test boundaries, to te- see what he can do. He's testing for weak spots. So there's, there's another camp that thinks, you know, he's simply testing. How quickly will the West rally behind Ukraine? Ukraine's not a NATO ally. And, and in fact, can't be a NATO ally in part because a country that is not fully control of its own territorial sovereignty can't be a NATO ally. Of course, yeah. So really testing for the weak spots and testing where he can really prod the West is definitely something that Putin will do. No one would want to predict what what he will do, but an escalation isn't out of the realm of possibility. But Ido wrote a piece this week and he made the very cogent point that the circumstances aren't what they were seven years ago. There's not a lot of pro-Russian support in the parts of Ukraine that aren't already annexed. So it's it it won't be as easy to just, you know, walk in and, and find Ukrainians are happy to now all of a sudden be be part of Russia. I think it's a reminder of two things. The first is that I'm stealing this from I interviewed a few weeks ago Fiona Hill, who is Trump's Russia person in the National Security Council. And she made the point that what the US really wants is for Russia to just not be a problem for the US. However, Russia can't have that because so long as it's a problem to the US, that's part of how it maintains relevance and importance and significance on the international stage. So this idea that the US can just not think about Russia, I think is being proven (laughs) false before our eyes. The other thing that I think this reminds us of, and Philip, I wanted to bring you in on this because there are so many people today, and I, you know, I'm very sympathetic to this argument to say, we just need to work with Russia and China on climate change. It is the most pressing issue. It is the existential crisis of our time. How do geopolitical disputes like this, I mean, and this is not a theoretical dispute, he is amassing troops on the border of another country. How does that frustrate those those arguments? Um, it's a really good question and super complicated. Um, I think at COP26, I have to say Russia was quite quiet. We didn't really hear particularly from Russia. I think what was interesting was there was a lot of pressure on China and the US to step up more. Um, and then in the Wednesday of the second week of the negotiations, China and the US suddenly came together and said they came, they came to a, a joint declaration in which they promised to set aside other geopolitical tensions, other issues and work together on climate change because they said this was the, the issue which they needed to work on for the, the greater good of of their own countries and humanity in, in general. So I think that, you know, the proof will now be in the pudding as to whether that really is the case and exactly how they they set themselves out as climate leaders and, and what exactly they do. You know, climate change is a global issue. We all have to work together. If countries don't, especially if big countries like the US or China are not on board, then we can't bring down emissions to the levels that we, we need them to. So everybody does need to work together. But clearly, geopolitical tensions will also undermine efforts to work together and stymie efforts efforts for everybody to to change essentially you know the global economic system so i think it's really really complicated and i i, I think the more tensions ratchet up elsewhere it, it will be an issue i also think migration is highly linked to to climate uh, you know obviously at the moment we're seeing a certain number of of migrants but as climate change takes hold there will be more more migration in terms of afghanistan afghanistan is currently you know in a drought um, they've had very little rain part of the problem which will also force people to migrate um, away from the political tensions is also you know, people can't feed their families, people can't farm, people can't make a living. And so these issues are all joined together. And clearly, if we're going to solve them, 
everybody needs to work together. But you know, that's a lot easier said than done with the with the current tensions. Absolutely. Well, this is also a story that we I know I say this about every story, but Russian behavior and, and Russia and its role in the wider world is actually a story that we regularly follow at the New Statesman. So please, we will continue following the story and you should keep following along. Thank you to all of us who sent in your questions. Listeners, you can send yours in at podcasts at newstatesman.co.uk. That's all the time we have for today. You can read our international team's reporting at newstatesman.com. And join us on Monday as Ido interviews Svetlana Tikhonovskaya, leader of the Belarusian opposition in exile. If you've enjoyed this episode of World Review, please like, subscribe, rate us, leave a review, and tell your friends. And subscribe to our World Review newsletter at newstatesman.com slash world hyphen review. Also, if you are a listener of this podcast, and we know you are, you are listening right now, or a subscriber to our World Review newsletter, please fill out our audience survey. As we continue to expand our international coverage, we want to take your feedback into account. You can find the survey, which takes five minutes, at www.newstatesman.com slash world survey. Our producer has been Mae Robson. Thank you for listening and until next time. Trust in politics is broken. So can we get UK politics working again? That was the last time we were happy. 2012. I'm Beth Rigby, Sky's political editor. Join me every week with Labour's Jess Phillips and Conservative peer Ruth Davidson for some electoral dysfunction. This idea of nuance has completely left politics. Together, we'll focus on the policies that could deliver political satisfaction. Follow electoral dysfunction wherever you get your podcasts.